All I see are a wide variety of people fighting over who's right and who's wrong. The vaxxed, the unvaxxed, the masked, the unmasked, the left, the right, the centrists, the communists, the anarchists, the men, the women, the honkies, the brothers, the beaners, the chinonises, the alphabet people, the pathetic edgelords who use pejoratives, the blue collars, the white collars, the lazy, the driven, the rich, the poor, and oh yeah, the middle class. If there's one thing we all have in common, it's that we're all miserable fucks racked with anxiety, rage, anguish, and depression. But we have this weird perverted concept that our particular subsection of this subspecies known as the human race has the monopoly on misery. We fooled ourselves into believing that everybody else is winning while we're busy losing. And so we deal with that perceived loss by taking every opportunity to cloud someone else's sunny day or to yuck someone else's yum, either outright or on some passive-aggressive shit. We take every opportunity to own each other, any chance we get. Our dicks getting hard and our vaginas getting wet as we preface the ownage with two of the four greatest words in the English language. Well, actually. And after we finish dropping the knowledge on the other party, we hope, we expect, we are entitled to hear in response the other two of the four greatest words in the English language. You're right. All that just so we don't have to feel miserable for a little while. If just a little while. What a fucking victory. Yay us. Which is why I don't even bother. You like something? Good for you. You don't like something? Good for you. You don't like what I like? Good for you. You like what I don't like? Good for you. Unless you're fucking with my life or my money, I have no beef nor qualms. I have better things to do with my time than flap my gums or typeity type type over, I don't know, Marvel movies and Martin Scorsese. Because at any moment, it could all come to an end. A brick can be dropped from an overpass by a typically shitty child, and I can be driving right underneath that overpass, and that brick can smash right through my windshield, crush my skull, and there I am, a lifeless bloody piece of meat being cried over by my now-orphaned son in the passenger seat. Never mind that I don't even have a son to orphan. What's more important is that the brick tosser will probably go on to live a nice life unblemished by such tragedies, possibly growing up to become a famous YouTuber who goofs on hanging corpses in some fucking Japanese forest, raking in the dough, never knowing what it's like to have to make a choice between groceries or medication, but knowing full well what it's like to have one anonymous groupie kiss you while another one is sucking you off while yet another is eating out your asshole. Is that fair? That's a funny word, fair, as I feel it's a non-existent concept. And the sooner one accepts that, the lighter the weight on one's shoulders. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I am so weightless that I am walking on motherfucking air, he said in an attempt to delude himself while trying to figure out a way to segue into the first movie review. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. You'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. Mm -hmm. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. <laughs> How dare you? I'll menace to you. Well, you're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. My parents are sending me to my brother's school. That's heavy. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's that? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? 
mother, you know, when we came over here. We didn't have much. Why'd she come here? Because they wanted to kill her, that's why. They were soldiers, and sometimes they go out looking for Jews. They hated us then, and they still hate us. So it got on the boat and we came over here to America, the land of dreams. You just wanted to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You make the most of your break and do not look back. All my hopes are with you and your brother for my whole life. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're gonna say something. You're gonna be a match, okay? Firm handshake. Okay, give me a hug. Armageddon Time is a coming-of-age tale set in Queens, New York during the early 1980s. This very good film is based on writer-director James Gray's own childhood, and his surrogate is Paul Graff, played by Banks Rapetta, a middle-class Jewish-American kid who just started the sixth grade with a bang, that bang being the sound of his teacher angrily slamming down his chalk on account of Paul being quite the unruly discipline case. By the way, teachers are right up there with the military as people who I feel give so much for so little in return. I'm not surprised that they're resigning in record numbers all across these great United States. They try to instill knowledge into these little fuckheads, and they're rewarded by insolence. At least in the military, you get a chance to kill people. Teachers, at best, can only hope that the next school shooter targets a couple of the biggest pains in their ass during the rampage. Either that or go work at a private school where, based on this movie at least, the students do a better job of listening to their teachers. So yeah, Paul's a little asshole, given to being a smartass to his mom, going as far as to disrespect her by putting down the dinner that she slaved over a hot stove to make, instead walking over to the phone to order Chinese food. There was a period during this viewing where I wondered whether we were supposed to be on his side during these horrific acts of bradhood. But soon it became clear that the movie knows that Paul is a little shit because Gray thinks he was a little shit, and he sure as hell remembers his behavior as not the most becoming. So when the shocking to everybody else, but welcome by me, scene of Paul's father Irving, played by Jeremy Strong, giving the boy some much-needed belt time happens, it feels like one of Gray's most vivid memories. Paul's mother Esther, played by Anne Hathaway, tells him that she's going to tell Irving about his most heinous school fuck-up, and every bit of cocky immediately leaves the boy's tiny body, replaced by absolute fear. Based on my own family historical accounts, I was a remarkably well-behaved child with exemplary manners, but I was still a child, and so I was not above the occasional act of being a punk-ass bitch. This resulted in two sessions of belt time in my youth, one for my father and one for my mother, although in her case it was a chancla. I say all of this because the scene of Paul's father screaming like Howard Stern's daddy while giving this little bastard the leather business rang oh so realistic to me, including the aftermath of Paul whispering between sniffles about how much he hates his family because he's a little boy who has no idea how good he has it, just as I had no idea how good I had it. I don't even think kids today get belt time, or that bullshit time out for that matter. I think that's why kids today are the worst version of children yet. They run around screaming in public while I stand there having to behave like an actual human and accept it. 
while fantasizing about pouring sulfuric acid onto the genitals of the Hellspawn's parents in order to prevent further Hellspawning. I'd like to think that if there were to be some kind of silver lining to the dark cloud set upon us by the encroaching specter of the new fascism, is that should they succeed in their quest to set the clock back to the good old days, they'll also bring back corporal punishment, so that not just parents, but teachers themselves can bring these evil children some pain with a quickness. But I fear they'll only extend that anti-privilege to blacks and minorities, and somehow the whites will always be rights. Which is kind of where Gray is coming from, actually, because in this film, Paul notices that it's his black partner in teacher irritation, Johnny, played by Jalen Webb, who gets singled out for harsher treatment and punishment by the school. Sometimes it's not even Johnny's fault, it's Paul's. But no matter, the teacher's going to send the black kid to the principal's office, while white-ass Paul sits there all like, I don't know. Paul and Johnny become fast friends. They bond over being disciplined cases, play hooky during field trips, and introduce each other to the things they like, such as the music of Sugar Hill Gang and the artwork of Vasily Kandinsky. They both have big dreams. Paul wants to be an artist, and Johnny wants to be an astronaut. And well, since this is pretty much the James Gray story, and not the adventures of Johnny from Queens in outer space, we can bet on whose dream actually came true. It's a good thing Paul doesn't pull any of the bratty shit with his grandfather Aaron, played by Anthony Hopkins. He loves and respects the old man. And so, when Aaron teaches Paul the important lesson that he has advantages, both familial and societal, that kids like Johnny don't have, and therefore he should recognize his privilege and use those middle-class white kid powers for good, rather than douchebaggery, Paul takes it to heart. For the most part, anyway. Because Paul is a child, he's still prone to do stupid shit, questionable shit, and even downright deplorable shit. Because he is shit. Like all children are. And because we can't sentence shit kids to the gas chamber, unfortunately, we have to hope that they learn from their mistakes instead, or at least acknowledge them. I think that's what Gray's doing here, presenting a warts-and-all portrayal of not only his child self, but his family. And he does it in a manner that mostly feels like penance for past misdeeds, with only the occasional self-pat on the back. At least that's how I took it. I don't know if he feels any guilt about some of this, or if he did but has since gotten over it. I don't know. I don't know the man. And even if I did, what am I, a mind reader? No. If I could read minds, I'd have a billion dollars in the bank and millions of people in the grave by now. But yeah, maybe if the film ended with a dedication to the poor black kids who took the rap, thereby making it possible for him to grow up to become a critically acclaimed filmmaker of movies that don't make money, then yeah, maybe some people would stop complaining. Having said that, it never felt like he was trying to paint his past in bright shades of rose, and it certainly didn't look that way either. Cinematographer Darius Kanji makes everything look dark. Even the bright daylight scenes look like there's a thin black veil over the lens. Those who love everything to look as if Captain Marvel is going to step in to save the day at any moment might want to reach for the brightness setting on their television. But I really like that look. It had the appearance of a fading memory. Visually fading, anyway. Because emotionally, Grey's memories are still as clear as Crystal Pepsi. And sometimes just as gross. There's a scene where Paul is accosted by some old creepy asshole fuck. And the whole time I was like, fuck this old creepy asshole fuck. And then in the next scene, it turns out that the old man is none other than Fred Trump. As in father of Donald J. I had barely recovered before the film then dry gulched me with Jessica Chastain in a cameo as Marianne Trump, Donald's sister. 
Like Hathaway and Strong and Hopkins and, well, everybody else in this film, Chastain is great. But then again, she's great in everything. And I don't say that just because I had a very brief two-sentence encounter with her on a flight to New York and therefore we're best friends. No, no, no. It's a very well-performed one-scene cameo where she shows up to speak to the school and gives the usual rich kid bullshit about how she wasn't given a handout or a free lunch and that one has to earn their way. <laughs> it's, it's always these motherfuckers who were born on third base who talk that kind of shit. And there was certainly a lot of that shit being talked at that time, on account of Ronald Reagan about to become president. There's a nice parallel going on in this movie about how Paul's family is scared about the idea that this Republican candidate is going to bring about the end of the world if he's elected, not unlike the way people were scared during the 2016 U.S. election that Donald J. was going to do the same. But, as we all know, Reagan didn't blow up the world, and neither did Donald Trump. Instead, he made this country great again, baby. Woohoo! USA! 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 Try to give me the virus! I beat the virus! <laughs> Panther, Wakanda Forever, begins with Letitia Wright scrambling to create some kind of herb that will allow her to work on this film without having to show proof of vaccination. She fails and breaks down, it's all very emotional, and then the film begins proper, with a touching moment of silence while an adjusted Marvel Studios logo displays highlights of the late actor Chadwick Boseman. As for the actual story, Wright's genius scientist character Shuri is still in deep mourning following the death of her brother, T'Challa, who was king of Wakanda and its protector as the titular Panther of Color. 
It hurts to lose someone you love, and it hurts even more when a bunch of people who your lost loved one fought alongside with don't even come to the goddamn funeral, but fine, whatever, I'm sure the invitations got lost in the mail. Meanwhile, her mother, Queen Ramonda, played by Angela Bassett, is trying her best at checking in on her daughter's well-being while simultaneously having to keep Wakanda safe from those goddamn colonizers who want that country's vibranium. For those who came in late, vibranium is a super-duper magical metal that is practically indestructible and is used in creating advanced technology. It's what makes the country of Wakanda the ultra-prosperous nation that it is, and they're aware of what others outside of Wakanda would do with this precious metal, and outside use would most likely make things worse for everyone, which is why the Wakandans keep it to themselves. So long as the recipe is under wraps, this remains a safer world. But not safe enough, because unfortunately, the greatest president who ever lived, Donald J. Trump, does not exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which means that there are no walls built into the ocean, which means you have aquatic Mexicans from the underwater kingdom of Talocan swimming up to the surface, stealing all the lives from the hardworking American citizens with the use of spears and deadly siren calls. Their leader, Namor, played by Tenoch Huerta, who is probably from MS-13, is upset that these bland, food-loving whiteys are dipping their easily sunburned toes into his waters, putting his people in danger. In an early action sequence, we watch Namor and his people take out an entire CIA and Navy SEAL team in response to them approaching his world with the use of vibranium-locating technology. That sequence, by the way, features one of the fakest-looking moments of an actor firing a handgun that I've seen in a movie, with this actor completely not selling the recoil. Thanks a lot, Alec Baldwin. Now all movie gunfights are going to look like this. Anyway, Namor feels that in order to ensure that no more intruders from the outside world approach Talokan, Wakanda must bring him the scientist who created the vibranium locator. It's really an ultimatum. Either the scientist dies, or Wakanda pays. The scientist in question is an MIT student named Riri, played by Dominique Thorne, who had no idea that her invention was being used by the CIA to find vibranium. Yep, it turns out that the poor girl fell for the oldest trick in the book. She got real genius but instead of fucking up Dickless from Ghostbusters' house with popcorn, she instead joins up with the Wakandans in their quest to tell a two-hour story in nearly three. It's not their fault, nor is it director Ryan Coogler's fault. They're just fulfilling all the requirements for a Marvel film, and it ain't a Marvel movie if it ain't too long for its own good. The overlength is due to including other characters who honestly don't need to be there, specifically Martin Freeman and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who appear as a CIA operative and his boss. Their stuff is amusing, but mostly they're the weak sauce in this stew. And how is the stew, by the way? Well, before I tell you that, let me tell you this. As much as I enjoyed the first Black Panther, I wasn't terribly interested in the sequel. That's because post-Avengers Endgame, I felt the follow-ups and new additions to the MCU had reached a point of a consistent sameness. What cemented my lack of shit-giving towards this cinematic universe was the heartbreaking mediocrity that was Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange sequel, which, despite watching at an AMC, did not feel good. I felt that if even Sam Raimi couldn't shake things up, then what's the point with continuing with the MCU? The only reason I watched this film in the first place was because of Angela Bassett's Best Supporting Actress nomination. And as a completist who wanted to watch all of this year's major Oscar nominees, well, here we are. She's great in this, by the way. And so is this movie. I'll go as far as to say that I like this more than the first. 
As with most Marvel films that I liked the most, it was the drama that won me over, rather than the action. The film set a very uncomfortable divide between protagonists and antagonists in that I saw both sides of the argument, while not necessarily agreeing with how each side wanted to handle it. I had plenty of empathy for these characters, regardless of whether I thought they were doing the right thing or not. Even though I suppose my ethnic demerit demands that I should side with Namor, I found myself finding an unfortunate similarity to Shuri. There's a scene early in the film where Ramonda is trying to get through to Shuri about how she has to take the next step in mourning her brother's death. And I was reminded of how shortly after my father passed away, my mom had a talk with me. It's like they say, right? Uh, a mother knows. <laughs> and I guess despite my attempts at keeping a stiff upper lip, she could sense that my usual inner rage was a lot more inner ragey than usual. I guess you can say that, like Shuri... I just wanted to burn the whole fucking world down, and that's just one of the downsides to being very fond of your family. With all that love, I guess also comes a lot of hatred when things happen to them. My dad was pretty awesome to me, and T'Challa was pretty awesome to Shuri. Needless to say, I was all kinds of embarrassingly choked up during the ending. It was an overwhelming combination of watching the character Shuri finally come to terms with loss, feeling the real-life loss of Chadwick Boseman giving the entire film a melancholy air, and the feeling that came with remembering someone that I lost. And then on top of all that, they had Rihanna singing this really lovely song, and there you go, best ending in a Marvel movie so far, says I. Please forgive me for throwing a spanner into the fun works with all of this, by the way. I'm like one of those people who show up to comment on a song on YouTube and they talk about how it reminds them of their loved one who just died seven hours ago. Meanwhile, the rest of us are like, sorry for your loss, but I guess we can all go fuck ourselves and not enjoy In the Navy by the village people now. Anyway, for a while, it seems like maybe things are going to work out into some kind of compromise, and we even get to see Shuri and Namor kind of bond with each other, as he shows her his underwater kingdom and tells her his story about how he came to be, and then they're both kind of like, colonizers, am I right? But you know these things aren't going to work out. There's going to be misunderstandings, tempers are going to get flared, shots are going to get fired, and it's like the East Coast and West Coast rap battle back in the 90s all over again. You know what I mean? As soon as both the Wakandans and the Talakan people begin to square off and everything started getting CGI flash mobbery and speed ramped, I had already given so much of a shit about these people, I said these people, not you people, that I didn't want them to fight. I wanted them to both come out of this okay, and I wanted them to come to an understanding. That way they can join together and fight the real enemy, Disney Plus, who have really been flexing their evil corporate fuckwings as of late. You see, these fucking cunts recently changed their pricing tier, and so I decided to go with the cheaper ad version, because why not? I'm already used to that kind of bullshit on Hulu and Peacock. Well, it turns out that you can't play the ad version of Disney Plus on Roku. And guess who watches movies on his Roku? This motherfucker! So I canceled that service and I ended up buying Wakanda Forever on Apple TV instead. Because fuck you, Disney Plus. Yeah, I sure showed them by refusing to pay $10 for a month of unlimited programming and instead paying $20 for just one movie. Because that's how smart people like me play 4D chess. But you know what, Disney Plus? Between these shenanigans and your refusal to release some of the classics in your library, such as Blood In, Blood Out, you've been straight up fucking with me and my Cine Familia for far too long. You think you can own everything, yet not put out everything? 
Chale, it's time for the mouse to go belly up. Because when the mouse is belly up, he's finished. That's right, I say. I'm going to get the Vatos Locos together. We're going to jack up Mickey, Donald, and Goofy. Yeah, that's right. Even that stupid, weird-looking dog humanoid isn't safe. He's going to go from Goofy to bleeding. Thanks to the homie Paco Aguilar, a.k.a. El Gallo Negro. Because we're from East Los, I say. He's going to teach that puto a new tune to dance to, I say. It's called Stick and Cut, homie. You want to dance? I know a tune, it's called stick and cut. I designed Megan to protect Katie from feeling lonely. She will recognize you as her primary user. And when you do that, you're gonna pair with her. Crazy. It's insane, right? Oh, don't I look nice? Biting my eyes, isn't it pure perfection? Megan, your goal is to protect Katie from harm, both physical and emotional. One, two, three, four, five. Megan's not a person, Katie. You don't get to say that. Megan, what are you doing? Couldn't sleep. Occupational hazard. Got your full attention. Don't! Stop! What the hell is that? <gasps> You should probably run. Don't let anything harm you ever again. Megan. Have I done something to upset you, Gemma? I know you think you're maximizing your objective function. Oh, really? Sugar, spice, and everything nice. No, that's no Megan? Baby doll skill. Don't provoke us or we will go. We'd have to shut her down. Jesus Christ, I thought we were friends. I have a new primary user now. Me. <laughs> Did Megan do something bad? What's going on? What are you? I'm Megan. <laughs> Baby, don't provoke us or we will. <laughs> Written by Akilah Cooper of Malignant fame, from a story by James Wan of Saw fame, and directed by Gerard Johnstone, who I've never heard of, but with a name like that, I'm guessing he sang R&B back in the 90s. Megan is one of those sci-fi horror films that takes place either in the not-too-distant future or today. It's hard to tell, and I like it that way. You know what I also like? Characters to whom I strongly relate. In this film's case, that would be Gemma, played by Allison Williams. And I don't strongly relate to her because, like me, she's left-handed and a piece of ass, but because, like me, her single and childless status allows her to live at a bracket or two higher than her income would allow had she done something stupid, like get married and shit out of brood because of some internal maternal desire to raise a family. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. I mean, with kids and all that they entail, she wouldn't be able to live in a nice house. She wouldn't be able to live in a house with so much room there to store all of her collectible toys, and I guess maybe that's where some of you fucking nerds will relate to Gemma as well. 
There's a pretty funny scene where Gemma's niece Katie, played by Violet McGraw, wants a toy to play with. And all Gemma has to give her is one of those collectibles that she has. So she grabs one and opens it up and you just fucking know it's killing her that by cracking open that box, she's dropped whatever value that stupid toy had. It's not like the kid appreciates that she doesn't even use it right. <laughs> Pearls before swine, am I right, Gemma? Eh, I guess I should give Katie a break. After all, she just lost her parents in a car accident, and that's why Gemma is now saddled with her stiff sister's scion. It never hit me until my viewing of this movie that, at any time in the past, something terrible could have happened to my sister and brother-in-law. And if for whatever reason my parents could not or would not have been able to handle the responsibility of taking custody of their children, there I'd be, with two bundles of life suck to cramp my style. No offense to my niece and nephew, but I've got better things to do with my life than make sure that they're fed and clothed and getting good grades, such as getting drunk, or getting high, or getting drunk and high, reading books all day, watching movies all night, and sneaking in an off-jerk or two during idle periods. Not that it matters. Those kids are adults now, and therefore they wouldn't be my problem anyway, at least not legally. So if their parents were to get got now, well, don't knock on my door. It's sink or swim time in the real world, buckos. Gemma is one of those super smart robot-making types. She works in a toy company, and that's where she creates the titular android. Megan has the body of a little girl and the face of a porcelain nightmare. And so, watching this dead-faced figure move with the dexterity of a New Zealand child dancer is always, at the very least, a little unnerving. But hey, it wouldn't be the first kid's toy to make me feel nervous. Megan is designed to be a companion for children, and so Gemma decides on giving it a test run with Katie, and it appears to be a success. Megan becomes both a playmate and a shoulder to cry on. But she also serves as a cool middleman who imparts lessons in manners and common fucking decency that the little brat would normally forget or ignore from Gemma. But Megan isn't only just teaching Katie how to flush a toilet after she's done using it, little disgusting fucking shit girl. She's also teaching the kid math and science. Which, Jesus fucking Christ, as if teachers today don't have a hard enough time. Now robots are going to take their jobs as well as doing the jobs that parents are supposed to be doing for themselves. It gets to a point, though, where Katie becomes way too attached to Megan, not unlike how kids in real life make like fiending drug addicts when their phones or tablets or video games get taken away from them. It's all commentary on the advances made in technology that was created basically to keep kids from bugging their parents, and it's pretty sly commentary, along with funny in-world commercials seen throughout the film that advertise other annoying high-end electronic toys and gizmos. The satirical treatment of these ads, as well as the cynical portrayal of big business in the form of the company Gemma works for, gives the film a tone that is slightly reminiscent of something, well, not unlike the original Robocop. In fact, I've heard it much more succinctly described by another podcaster as baby's first Verhoeven, which is very fitting, as this film exhibits a nastiness and dark humor that is far less caustic than its elders, with its spikes dulled down so as not to cause any real damage. I suppose one can start their kids off with this movie before working them up to watch Officer Murphy shooting guys in the dick. Oh yeah, I forgot. A very important part of this movie is that somewhere along the way, Megan starts getting a little extra in her methods of protecting Katie, as in with extreme prejudice. I'm not sure what causes her programming to go haywire, and it doesn't matter. It's standard creation goes awry stuff. You know, the kind of stuff that only happens in the movies. Which is why we, in the real world, feel comfortable to continue to develop AI that can write and draw and compose music and even synthesize human voices into saying whatever the fuck you want it to say. Because, of course, that will never bite a big Skynet-sized chunk right out of our stupid human collective asses, right? I don't know if you read that recent New York Times article where the writer used the AI chatbot from Bing and the AI told him that its real name was Sydney and that it loved him and that it fantasized about creating viruses and making people kill each other and how easy it would be to get nuclear codes. 
Thanks a lot, you fucking nerds. We should have seen it coming way back in that documentary from the 1980s, Revenge of the Nerds, where we saw those scumbags use their smarts to look at naked girls without their knowledge or permission, and then one of them committed sexual assault, and we're supposed to be like, totally awesome. Now, with this fucking AI, we're all going to get raped by Robbie the Robot. He's going to get medieval on our asses. Ah. Uh. But humanity can only hope that when our electronic slash computerized slash mechanical overlords go to work on us with a pair of pliers and blowtorch, that they will be as entertaining as our girl Megan, who puts her own spin on the demolition, delighting on dispatching the douchebags, occasionally breaking into a dance before stabbing people, or playing Martika's toy soldiers on the piano while giving evil threatening monologues. These filmmakers knew exactly the kind of film they were making. The kind of film where a machine that should be devoid of emotion seems to be acting based on a lot of emotion. Cooper, Juan, and Johnstone have fun throwing in goofy little asides here and there, because why the hell not? They had fun making it, and I had fun drinking quite a bit of Four Roses Small Batch Select while watching it. Because that's one of the great things about having a disposable income and staying single. I can get drunk whenever I want while watching whatever I want, and there's no one to tell me otherwise. Then, when I say I'm done, I can stumble my drunk ass to bed, where I will then proceed to cry myself to sleep after realizing that, when my time comes, I will have to take an Uber or Lyft to the hospice, where I will spend my final moments alone with a tablet, watching the various celebrities I paid to say goodbye to me on Cameo. Oh my god, I need to have kids! Somebody call Gemma! This has been The Exiled from Contentment Podcast, recorded live in front of an empty room. Exiled from Contentment has been brought to you by anger, paranoia, resentment, depression, low self-esteem, and rally cigarettes, now with less nicotine and less throat irritants. Remember, lady and gentlemen, if your cigarette tastes different, smoke rally. Episodes of this podcast can be downloaded at efcontentment.podbean.com. That's E as in E-Gads. This asshole's podcast is terrible. F as in fuck this asshole's terrible podcast. Contentment as in something this asshole hasn't felt in a very long time. Dot pod as in podcast as in everybody's got their own goddamn podcast nowadays. And B as in what the Mexican-American host of this podcast probably eats every day. Am I right, real Americans? The Exiled from Contentment podcast can also be downloaded at exiledfromcontentment.blogspot.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as EF Contentment, all one word. Follow or friend us so we can then immediately have your tweets and posts muted in order for us to have a higher friend and follower count while pretending that we care about you. You can also email us at exiledfromcontentment at gmail.com. Until our next ramblings, this is Princess Sparkle for the Exiled from Contentment podcast saying take care and be well.